Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. We highlight the voices of Native activists, writers, poets, artists, thinkers, and musicians who are fighting for the rights of Indigenous people all over Turtle Island. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. In this moment of historical change and social justice, our voices matter now more than ever before. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Say hey, and welcome back. This is Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Uh, Look, this is one of those shows that I got to make some references back to my previous podcast, my previous show. Um, and I'm not going to reiterate uh, the the previous show. But one of the things that I talked about and and the reason I talked about it was um, was slavery and the fact that chattel slavery, the slavery that Joe Biden appeared to be offering some remorse over to uh, uh, the, the Jacobs family, or, 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 or Jacob Blake's family, um, in his uh, visit to Kenosha, is not the slavery of Native people. So, I mean, let me let me back it up here. I, I what I offered was, sorry, Joe, but genocide and land theft were America's original sin, not the African slave trade the transatlantic slave trade. And, and, it, and when it was shortened, it just says not slavery. Now, I got a lot, I got some pushback. And most people got what I was saying. And I think even some of the people who, who were offering some pushback, they got what I was saying. But, you know, I, I get it. People want to offer their, their, you know, their two cents on, on some of these issues. And, and what, what was a common theme was no slavery existed before genocide. Um, Native people were slaved. And again, give, I want to give its proper due. <laughs> uh, it's the, the slavery that took place uh, at the hands of Columbus, of the Taino, the Arawak, the, the, uh, the, the people of the Caribbean, what would be called the Caribbean. Oh, I got bells and whistles going on everywhere here. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> what, what Biden was talking about was not slavery of Native people. So to put in context what I was talking about, what I was saying was that the slavery that, that Joe Biden appeared to be apologizing or, or, again, feigning some remorse over when he went to Kenosha was not the slavery. It was not the genocide committed against our people. In fact, that gets ignored. It gets ignored completely by, by both parties, you know, Democrats and Republicans. So the reason I brought it up is, is I took offense to it. In fact, I would argue that how um, genuine his remorse was over slavery by calling it America's original sin 
is the credibility of that remorse is challenged by the fact that he wouldn't acknowledge that native people were were enslaved native people had genocide committed against them native people had their land stolen so when i put it in that order i say the first you know the, the first sins of america are genocide land theft and then slavery the 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 slave enslavement of of native people are part of the genocide and are part of the land theft. So again, I appreciate people correcting me or offering their, their, uh, their thoughts on the subject. But again, to be clear, Joe Biden wasn't talking about the enslavement of native people at the hands of Christopher Columbus or the first transatlantic slave ship being one of Columbus's ship, bringing little girls back to Spanish elite. So, you know, I, I just want to want people to uh, to understand. I, I I wasn't mistaken, and I and, and I have no problem admitting to a, a mistake. But I think the context of the slavery that I was talking about, and my criticism of Joe Biden was that he wasn't offering any remorse to the enslavement of uh, those first that first ship of uh, of native people being sent back to Spain, you know, so Columbus could celebrate some some trophies. No, he wasn't. Joe Biden was specifically talking about the African slavery, the chattel slavery of the United States. Now, here's the other thing I want to say. Anybody who was saying, well, all people, you know, uh, were, uh, had slaves, you know, all cultures, you know, at, at some point in their history uh, participated in slavery. And, and I said it before, and, I, and I'll say it again. The slavery at, that the United States was involved in and, and the early col the colonies uh, in North America was unique throughout the world. And so uh, there was no other place in the world where slavery had reached the level of privateering that, um, that and, and profiteering that, uh, uh, that America had accomplished, the United States had accomplished. In fact, by almost any account of assessing um, the, the worth of American industry in the mid-1800s, even, you know, 1860 or whatever, the number one set or, or, or asset of the United States were, were slaves. Now, and so slaves were not just kidnapped and, and dragged across the, uh, across an ocean. They were, they were, you know, these people who were enslaved and were victimized through this chattel slavery system industry, let me, let me industry were they were forced to breed in captivity in captivity, had their children whisked away. They were bought and sold. They were a commodity. They were a, they were treated as as not as human beings, beasts of burden. And unlike some other cultures for thousands of years, where you might have had an occupying force that enslaved people for a while until they could be incorporated into their citizenry, and I'm not defending that kind of slavery either. But that's not what took place in the United States. And, and even the en enslavement of, of Native people uh, it was, was, was a little different. And, and, and I'm not saying it was less, um, you know, less of a tragedy or less of an atrocity. It certainly was. But in fact, in many ways, it was, it was more. But what I was talking about with Joe Biden's overture in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was that it was disingenuous because it didn't address America's, the United States' original sin, the original sin of genocide 
which again included murder, included mutilation, included um, enslavement, uh, and and enslavement at a level where the property that they they had, they had claimed of these human beings almost had no value except for what they could hand to them in terms of something of value. So the idea of killing, killing a slave, and it's not to say that slaves weren't killed in, in, in Americas, in the United States chattel slavery industry, but they were killed at a, at a level um, where somebody would assess were they more problematic than they were worth in terms of their labor. And the indiscriminate killing of, of native people by Columbus and his men was, was not necessarily tied to even the worth of, of, a, of a human being as a slave. So I, I need to say that. Now, and again, it's important that people realize that, that the slavery that the United States was guilty of was unique in all the world. And look, just in case people aren't, aren't aware of there, we talked about statues coming down and, and that kind of thing. Among the statues that have been that are being removed and names to streets and buildings of that is the name of um, Millard Fillmore. Now, if, for those who didn't know, and I wasn't sure why there was so much pushback about uh, on on Millard Fillmore. I, I knew he had some ties to Western New York, and I you know I, I didn't really know what that history was. So I looked it up a little bit. And the issue with Millard Fillmore is that he was the president who not just signed it into law, but embraced the Fugitive Slave Act. And I bring this up because it, it connects to this notion of this unique situation and, and the uniqueness of um, the slave, slavery industry, the chattel slavery industry in the United States. Think about a president from Buffalo, New York, <laughs> who, who essentially signs into law that even if you escape slavery and you make it to uh, and and make it to a place where slavery is not uh, necessarily legal or or that a, a a black man could be a free person you could be you could be apprehended and that turns into a whole nother business the fugitive slave act was was this set of laws that allowed southern states not southern states plantation owners individuals who felt like their property had been taken from them because of a runaway slave. So this was an attempt to, to, to basically undermine the Underground Railroad and to, to really harm the, the abolitionist movement. And that's what, that's what Millard Fillmore was, uh, as a president, was responsible for. So again, I bring this stuff up because it, it, this stuff is just, to me, it's almost crazy. I mean, when you think about how, how much, even Northern states, and, and again, Miller Fillmore with his ties to Buffalo, how much northern states were just as guilty of many of the atrocities committed during this chattel slavery era. But, but again, I, just to clarify the, the memes that I've posted and, and, and some of your responses, and, and I don't mind the responses, but I felt like, okay, let me clarify. The slavery that I'm talking about is the slavery that Biden was talking about. And what Biden was, was apologizing for or expressing some remorse for or, you know, suggesting that, that this original sin is what the, uh, that America still needs to confront, I think it challenges his credibility when you ignore the fact that 
that native people suffered, suffered slavery, and he wasn't talking about that. Native people suffered through genocide, and, and they suffered through land loss. And, and here's the other thing. It's easy to apologize for, the, um, for slavery when it comes to, to black people because um, for the apologies mean, mean almost nothing. But you, but you can say it because you can say, well, we, flee, we, we freed them. That the, uh, slavery ended, so the sin was corrected. Now, there was no contrition associated with this correction or this uh, absolution, uh, absolution of this sin. But, but to, to say, okay, yeah, we had that slavery thing, but we fixed it. We, we outlawed slavery and, uh, and the black men were freed. Well, the reason that there, that there won't be the, the proper acknowledgement of the atrocities and, and the crimes against humanity committed against Native people. Look, most... U.S. politicians will not embrace this notion of the American genocide. They don't. I mean, and it's not just, you know, Trump who rejects that. Again, Joe Biden suggesting that slavery was, was America's original sin is essentially erasing the, the true original sin, which, which was genocide. But see, see, here's the thing. When you can say, and I'm not saying that, that black people have been been adequately freed or compensated or reparated. None of, I'm not suggesting any of that. But when white, a white man gets in and say, well, we freed the slave, so we fixed it. Well, the funny thing is you didn't give the land back and you didn't, you didn't go back to acknowledging our free and independent existence. So our freedom is still tied to being subjugated by, by you. So you can't, the reason, you know, and, I, and this is my, my belief is the reason you, we can't get an acknowledgement about the original sins committed against our people is because they're still doing it. They still have the land. They still are, and they don't, they don't just still have the land they took. They're still trying to take control of the lands that we occupy. We're still in this pitted battle over land use. And we're still in this pitted battle, it rejecting or, or pushing back against assimilation. Assimilation, I said it before, assimilation is genocide. So the genocide didn't end. It didn't end with, you know, you know, with the 14th Amendment. It didn't end with the Indian Citizenship Act. It didn't end with any of this stuff. It still is going on. We are, if you ask any politician... I mean, and it's not even just ask them. If you try to tell a politician, well, you don't represent me, they're going to say, oh, oh, yes, well, yes, we do. I said, no, but you, you don't represent the land that I live on. Oh, oh yes, we do. We, you can, I literally have gotten into these arguments with, with the staff, uh, staff folks at, at, at a congressman's office or at a senator's office. They don't get the fact that we reject their claim to representing our people and our lands. They can't, they can't embrace it. Why? Because they're still trying to impose their subjugation, their submission. You know, they're, they're still trying to make us, you know, submit to their jurisdiction and to their governing authority. So I think it's really important that, that people understand this. You can't apologize for something you're still doing. You know, and, and if you jam two sticks in somebody's eyes and you pull one out, you don't deserve praise for that. Because the other eye still has a stick in it. So this is one of the things, 
and look, I, I, I do appreciate people commenting on, on a post because it, you know, it, it encourages a conversation. So whether somebody is, is critiquing or trying to correct something that I said, you know, keep bringing it on because that allows me to clarify. It allows me, look, even some of the, the ridiculous and, and the racist comments, I, you know, somebody posted uh, um, that clown who's the vice president of the Navajo Nation. What the hell's his name again? Myron uh, Lizer, you know, giving, you know, some COVID update. And I said, you know, look, this guy is a, is a Trump suck up. And he lost all credibility. So he says, well, I'm not afraid to hear diverging, diverging opinions. I'm not afraid of it. In fact, I didn't remove the post from my page. I just said his, his credibility is, uh, is, is, is uh, corrupted because he's, he's sucking up to Donald Trump and, and praising him for his, the handling of COVID-19, the, the pandemic. And then he's offering some sort of statement on where the Navajo Nation is with COVID-19. I'm sorry. I just am going to have a little trouble wrapping my head around the veracity of anything this guy has to say because he seems to have a skewed view of what is the proper handling of a pandemic because of, of the view that he expresses towards Trump. And I mean, he went on national television to praise Trump's handling of the, of the pandemic. So is that the guy I want to listen to who's going to tell me how great the Navajo Nation is handling uh, COVID-19 and their, their color-coded system and all that other stuff? I hope for the best. I wish the best for, for that. And I, and I hope that the tide is, is turning. I just don't believe it. I mean, look, I, I know a lot of people are praising the fact that, that COVID-19, the COVID-19 numbers of uh, confirmed by test cases has dropped below 30,000 for a couple of days in a row here in, uh, in, the, in the United States, I guess. Uh, the problem is I don't necessarily trust the day-to-day -day numbers, especially since they, get a, they get, somehow get impacted by a Sunday. Every Sunday, the numbers are lower. Do we really think that Sundays, uh, you know, people are less sick on Sunday? Is this a church thing? I don't know. Or a holiday? No. Part of it has to do with the fact that that testing is being manipulated. And so the number of cases and the number of deaths by COVID-19 are clearly higher than what the United States and, frankly, most other countries are reporting. And so I use the numbers that, that I talk about on this show only as reference, not as legitimate, you know, factual information on how many people are sick. You know, and of course, what I will say about numbers dropping below 30,000 for a couple of days in a row, that's going to make it even seem worse when the numbers are uptick because of uh, you know, school, you know, kids returning back to school. The other thing I got I to mention is, um, you know, I talked about all these, all these guys heading out to Sturgis for their, their motorcycle rally. By some estimates, uh, there are a quarter of a million cases that have been linked to the half a million people who went to Sturgis for their, their motorcycle rally. Um, and, you know, and the, the cost is in the millions, possibly the billions of dollars associated with over 250,000 people. And I've heard as high as 260,000 or something like that. So, I mean, it's, it's absurd that those who want to express their freedom and, uh, and their belief that the COVID-19 thing was a hoax um, end up exacerbating, you know, the, the situation by, by 
attending these huge rallies. And, you know, again, what was one of the arguments? Well, how come everybody's saying a quarter of a million people, uh, you know, are have been linked to Sturgis, but but no, nobody's talking about the uptick of, of cases with all of these protests. Well, <laughs> I got to tell you, part of it is because these protests aren't people partying and swapping spit and going into bars. The protests are people wearing masks, trying in any way possible to observe some level of social distancing. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there, but they aren't they aren't partying. And there's a different atmosphere when when you're look when you're socializing than when you're than when you're protesting so uh and and you know that was i think the news was looking for an uptick in uh, corona cases after uh some of these you know these street protests and i i think that they were probably surprised i think the, much of the mainstream media was surprised that there wasn't an uptick but and and, and obviously they, they look for it after you know after this motorcycle rally and guess what? Yeah, they got it there. I mean, immediately they knew there were hundreds of cases, and then those hundreds of cases, you know, turned into thousands of cases, and those thousands of cases. That's kind of the way a pandemic works. You know, it it expands geometrically. Well, and and that's what's happened. So, congratulations, you guys. Uh, you you guys have done done a great job for God bless America. <laughs> um, hey, I, all right, I I do have. Something else that I'm going to get into, and I'll, I'll just kind of present it before I go to break. It, it'll give people a chance to wrap their heads around something a, a little bit here. I did hear another radio program that was addressing um, Buck v. Bell. If you don't know what Buck v. Bell is, it is a, um, it's, it's a case from 1927 where essentially the Supreme Court, um, in a, and I think it was in a 7-to-1 decision, approved... Um, the the idea of sterilization of people who could be regarded as imbeciles, epileptics, or feeble-mindedness. It is it is where eugenics. I mean, it's funny because when you when people think about Darwinism and and natural selection and and how some somebody tweaks this to this idea, well, if natural selection can improve a species. What if we manipulate it unnaturally? <laughs> and that's what eugenics is, right? And so when people think about eugenics, they automatically think of Nazis, right? No, it isn't Nazis. It was the United States. And in fact, if anything, the United States became the breeding ground for some of the, these eugenics conversations that would take place in other countries. But eugenics is this notion that you could sterilize and you could breed out unwanted characteristics. And... The reason I'm bringing this up is because eugenics, when it, the concept is, again, breeding in or breeding out certain characteristics. So the first way to really practice with this is, is trying to um, take advantage of people who are marginalized. And you can marginalize them, whether, the, whether there's, a, there's a handicap, a mental handicap. Or whether there's a you know a medical or physical handicap like like uh, epilepsy or or just getting in trouble with the law and somebody saying you know what this person is genetically damaged and you know and they're never going to amount to anything their kids are never going to amount to anything and their kids are never going to amount to anything so we might just as well sterilize them now the, now keep in mind the sterilization is not a punishment. It is, it is being regarded as something that you do as a greater good for society. 
that you're going to improve society by not allowing a certain class or a certain type of person to, to have children. Now, why am I bringing this up on Let's Talk Native? Because in this whole program that I was listening to uh, on, on the radio, and then as I started looking, you know, delving into it a little bit more online, there's almost no conversation about how this concept and this law, this, this, this ruling in court, which was done intentionally. I mean, this isn't something that just, you know, got challenged and brought to the Supreme Court because somebody was trying to overturn this. No, I think it was the state of West Virginia specifically chose um, the bucks, you know, three generations of bucks, I guess, um, because they felt like they, they would have this most solid argument and the most solid case for um, why this thing should be legalized at the federal level because there was nothing on the, on the books, essentially. And, and, and this was, so, so that's what this was all about. But it was, again, it was about the, this idea that you could improve humanity through eugenics. Well, again, what's not mentioned is the sterilization of Native people. So we're going to take a break, and, uh, and when we come back, I want to get into this thing, because what's, what's missing in most of the conversations about how um, the racist nature of things like residential schools or sterilization was that it wasn't about some assessment of somebody's mental capacity. It wasn't some assessment of, of a disability, mental or physical. It was just a determination that Native people, by being Native people, were already mentally disabled. They were, in the words of Keith Burrick, professor at Canisius College, author of The Thomas Indian School and the Irredeemable Children of New York, is that Native kids were being legally deemed irredeemable. And if you can do that, and you've got Buck v. Bell on the books, you can sterilize, you can sterilize na uh, young Native girls. Not, I mean, you can sterilize them <clears throat> before you release them so, from, from your residential school. So that's what I'm going to talk about when we come back. So this is John Kane. Uh, this, is, this is Let's Talk Native. We'll be right back with this tough subject when we come back. All right. Hey, thanks for coming back. This is John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Uh, the day after Labor Day, <laughs> essentially. Um, it's, it's, it's funny to have a holiday that's supposed to celebrate um, labor at a time when almost where unions have essentially been busted by capitalism and the, the, the right to work laws, which are anything but really protecting the rights of workers. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of insane. Hey, I want to give a shout out to my WPFW listeners. Um, and, and all of you who listen in the various ways we, you know, there's a podcast, there's a YouTube video, it's a, it's a Facebook live stream. And of course we are a radio show as well. But I will say, if you're not subscribed to our podcast, if you're not subscribed to our YouTube channel, Let's Talk Native TV, you're missing some content. And again, you know, I, in the first half hour, I, I addressed a previous show and some of the content on there. So I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast. If you go to your smart speaker or Google search, Let's Talk Native with John Kane, 
podcasts. You will find uh, you know, we, we show up on every major platform for podcasts and you sign up for the RSS feed and uh, and you'll catch all of our content. Um, well, you'll catch all of our audio content. You won't catch all of our video content unless you subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll get our short form videos. And it's interesting. I, I was delving back in <clears throat> looking for some of the old videos that I did. And I, and I reposted um, a video that we didn't actually shoot. We actually, Jake pulled it off of the UN uh, video feeds that they had. It was when I spoke at the UN uh, a couple of years ago on their World Indigenous Peoples Day and was kind of rudely interrupted by the moderator. And then, you know, she said, would you please get to a question? And then I got to a question and then she and others refused to answer it. So, um, uh, but you know, I, there's a lot of videos that are out there. Some of them that were, are shows, but some of them are, are are things like this: a video feed from the UN, um, some of our short form videos. Um, we did a, a series that, uh, of shows um, that are that we called "Why It Matters," and uh, you know, so th there's a lot there's a lot of good videos there, and and I know the way people view a lot of the stuff is just the stuff that they come across. It shows up on Facebook. It, you know, it gets reposted, but, um, and I will do that. I'm going to delve into some of those older videos and uh, just repost them on Twitter or someplace. So, because as I look at some of the old stuff that we did that, you know, some of the people who are listening and watching now probably are not familiar with the, all the content is valid today. It's as valid today as it was the, you know, the day we recorded it. So, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll play around with that a little bit, but I do encourage people to, to subscribe to our, our YouTube channel, subscribe to our podcast. And that way you'll catch more content, um, uh, that you may, if you're, if you're only looking for what comes through your feed, yeah, you're, you're going to miss some stuff. So, uh, so I encourage you to, um, yeah, look back. Um, look, I also, we, we, I was talking about Buck v. Bell. I think it's important that people realize that that law or that ruling is still in the books. It's never been overturned. What did happen, and again, Buck v. Bell, for those who may have joined in late, <laughs> is a, was a landmark ruling. Uh, I think it was 7 to 1, uh, the, 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 the judges ruled, that uh, eugenics was legal, that states or, or you know that it was legal to um sterilize somebody against their will because somebody else determines that they may not be genetically viable for you know for the good of uh you know of all you know humanity i guess the crazy part is some of you who would make that argument or who argued for eugenics they cited darwin and darwinism right here's the problem with that Darwin made it very clear that one of the main components that contributed to this, this theory of natural selection, improving a species or species, was variability. Because we don't understand why we have, why there's variability. And there, you know, I know people can get all religious. But, oh, well, there's always God always has a plan. God always has a reason. Well, I don't know about that. But I will say that what we may not understand is variability in somebody's genetic, you know, code or, you know, perhaps some characteristic. We may not know why or, or if that variability has, has value until something is confronted. So, you know, maybe it makes somebody more disease resistant to a certain strain, maybe, maybe a COVID-19, who knows? But variability in our DNA. So when you try to manipulate that and you say, okay, we're going to take away this variability and we're going to determine what is feeble-mindedness 
What is a disability? Uh, you know, what is you know a characteristic that can be brought up? And and of course, it's impossible to to pinpoint a characteristic so narrowly that you don't have any other adverse effects. So the very people who cited Darwin as their um, as a reference or, or as an argument for eugenics missed the point. And you know, look, and I'm not just sitting here to trying to, to to praise up you know Darwin or or anybody else. But what I will say is that Darwin understood that what made natural selection work was the fact that there were little variations in every species, and those small variations may determine a species' survivability or advancement. So, uh, again, all right, so, no, so again, why, why am I talking about Buck v. Bell? It's not a, look, there are all kinds of native cases we could cite, right? We can talk about all kinds of Supreme Court decisions. We can talk about all kinds of racist laws and everything else that, uh, that had us in mind. This didn't have us in mind. But was, what, what, what was unique um, in what would, what would play out is that native people would be characterized racially along our ethnic and racial lines as being feeble-minded. Yeah, look, Thomas Indian School, you know, the, the, they, they call it Thomas Indian School, but they used to call it Salem. You know why they called it Salem? No, nothing to do with burning witches. Salem was was uh, was asylum. It was just um, bastardized, you know, language, uh, um, vernacular. Asylum, asylum, uh, no, asylum got you know got twisted into Salem. These schools were called asylums, and, and in fact, and this is what Keith Burke uh, talks about in his, in his book again, uh, the, the Thomas Indian School and the Irredeemable Children of New York. That's what he talked about was this, this notion that, that the state, the states and the United States were looking at native as, as that native identity was a, was a mental handicap. And so even some of this, this notion that kill the Indian, save the man, well, if we can get rid of the primitive underlying teachings that native people have, they can be productive people, you know, members of, of American society. That wasn't really the only um, uh, strategy at play here. I mean, it wasn't the only policy. I mean, among the policies was that we got to put these kids in these schools because they don't belong anyplace else. They belong, in, they, they, you know, these, and that's why these schools were like prisons. And, and that's why, you know, kids would be beaten for trying to leave them. And look, the kids that were, were whisked away to these schools, they weren't just whisked away because of behavior. Now, granted, there, there had come a time where the policies of the United States had destroyed families, had destroyed communities, had, uh, you know, had, had made survival very, very difficult. And so, so kids were, in, in many ways, um, the, the damage caused by these policies. But the fact that the United States and, and, and the states were re regarding Native kids as just being mentally deficient, irredeemable children, because they were Native, that made them prime candidates for, for sterilization. And I don't know, I mean, one of the things that, that I was learning about this, you know, Buck v. Bell and, and uh, how uh, the pushback that even came fairly recently, 
there was an attempt by, by a specific lawyer who wanted to um, uh, try to go through the West Virginia courts, I think it was, to, to see what it would take to have somebody sterilized in, in now. I mean, I, I mean look, Buckley Bell was passed in 1927. Many states had already rejected this notion of forced sterilization, but not all states. So this, this attorney wanted to go through this process, and... As soon as kind of the, the hysteria started growing, growing about what he was doing, the state legislature, the state legislature got rid of it. They got they they you know abandoned this the uh, the legal process of you know court ordered sterilizations. So the the what the attorney did after that was said okay well I'm gonna sue let me find some um, some people who survivors of, uh, of this, these sterilizations. And so he decided he was going to, you know, push a case and try to, I don't know if it was a class, has, class action suit or, or something, um, and began the process. Now, some states felt like, oh, look, we're not going to be embarrassed by this. So they began um, compensating. I think North Carolina, in North Carolina, they, they were paying survivors, survivors of this the sterilization um, $50,000, you know, per person, not look, that is not a sufficient number for, uh, for stripping away somebody's ability to have a, you know, a family legacy, but that, that's what they did. And they felt that that was a cheap way out and it was better than being sued. And if you start dangling $50,000 in front of a bunch of people, especially if you could, many of these people maybe did have some level of mental handicap. So you start dangling $50,000. In fact, West Virginia, getting back to West Virginia, they said, hell, we don't need to offer $50,000. We'll just offer $25,000. So they, they cut the, the number in half. And, and you know, thousands of, thousands of people were paid these reparations for having been sterilized under this, under this program. And, and other states that did it as well. No Native people were compensated for this. And I don't, look, this idea of sterilization, it probably predated uh, Buck v. Bell. I mean, sterilization was happening in many of these states um, before the Supreme Court ruling. You know what? What was unique about Buck v. Bell was the the people who were were committing the, the sterilization sterilization knew that they they were on pretty solid ground and they thought they could get a, a positive ruling. In fact, <laughs> they even hooked up the lawyer representing um, the Buck girl who was sterilized. He was a eugenics supporter. So they, they, I mean, look, it was, it was just a scam. It was a scam. So even as she was being represented by counsel, she was being represented by counsel by somebody who was, you know, almost directly related to the institution that committed, <laughs> that was responsible for the, uh, the sterilization in the first place. I mean, it's, it's really that twisted. That's, and this isn't Nazi Germany, folks. This is the United States. Buckby Bell, 1927. That's the 20th century, folks. And the law is still on the books. It's never been overturned. But again, the reason I'm bringing it up, and I don't know what the total number is. I know one of the things that, that was kind of a, a, a bit of a thunderbolt was that when um, uh, the BIA was taken over in the 70s by AIM and others, um, that was among some of the material that they had uh, that they had gathered up was uh, was some of the the documents associated with sterilization programs and these sterilization programs were tied to residential schools but also to the to Indian health services 
There were native people who were coerced into sterilization. And, and oftentimes this would be tied to, to somebody who, who, was, who had a child. And, and they, would, they would, you know, threaten somebody. Well, if you don't allow us to, um, you know, to end your ability to give chil have children, you will be denied this or you will be denied that. So there were, there, it wasn't the court-ordered sterilization per se under, you know, uh, codified into law by Buck v. Bell. But it was still coerced sterilization. And in some cases, there were Native women, young Native women, who had no idea this was happening to them. Look, there were pelvic exams being, giving, being given to, to Native women who would get some sort of, you know, uh, pass to go home for a period of time. The first thing that they would do is jump on the table with the stirrups and, and they would get a pelvic exam. I mean... It is, it, I mean, it, it is insane that this is some of the stuff that, that occurred. But again, what, what stuck out to me as I was listening to this program and, and started reading a little bit, I can find no place that um, anybody involved the, the sterilization of Native people into the conversation uh, related to specifically to eugenics. And specifically to these court ordered, you know, and, and the idea that you, you could legally um, sterilize somebody because of their mental capacity. And, but I, but even though I can't find that tie and, and, I, and I encourage people, maybe, you know, Professor Keith Burke will, will take a look into this even farther or, or some of the people who have already done some of this work. But what concerned me is when I look at Keith's, uh, you know, Professor Burke's work, I realized that one of the things that he found most appalling was this notion that there was this uh, determination carte blanche that Native kids were, were somehow feeble-minded and that they were, you know, they, they could be dubbed irredeemable <clears throat> without a crime, without any assessment of, of a behavior just by virtue of being Native. That that could, and, and that these schools were being called asylums. They weren't just being called the, a school, it wasn't just the Indian school. They were being rely, regarded as some sort of uh, mental institution. And that's, was, that was the nature of what residential schools had been. And again, I want to be clear. Sterilization was not confined to um, uh, post-pubescent uh, girls in, in residential schools. This practice of sterilization of Native women uh, was, was something that was was happening all over the U.S. and Canada, mind you, um, as as a way to, to you know a way to diminish our population. And it's interesting because as I was watching this or listening to this program, they talked about this notion of sterilization was was an extermination, but only in the case of Native people is it an ethnic cleansing. Only in the case of Native people is the sterilization race-based. In all of this other conversation about eugenics uh, in the United States, it was really trying to um, assess an individual's mental capacity. Individual, not based on necessarily... I, I'm not saying they, they didn't lump a bunch of people because of social class or perhaps race into, uh, into some of these categories. But in the case of Native people... It was it was clear that they were regarding native kids as uh, as mentally handicapped just by virtue of being native, and 
And that's still incredible to me. You know, so as, you know, Canada, you know, went through their so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you get through this notion of truth and reconciliation. And I don't know how you reconcile um, an atrocity like that. And, and of course, the United States doesn't even have that conversation. You know, like I said, neither political party even wants to acknowledge the genocide that Native people experience. They, look, they'll, they'll take ownership of slavery and, and suggest that they, you know, that maybe they'll even consider at some point some level of reparations. I mean, that conversation's not off the table. But almost nobody, almost nobody talks about the America's original sin that, you know, and, and that genocide includes the sterilization and, and, and includes, you know, murder and rape and, and, and all of that stuff. And of, and of course, you know, land theft is, is a part of that as well. So, I, you know, and it's interesting. I didn't really think about when I was going to talk about these two subjects, how much they come together. And, and the whole time as I'm listening to this story about Buck, Buck v. Bell, I'm thinking, they got to mention, they got to mention uh, sterilization of Native people. It just doesn't happen. See, we talk about erasure. We and 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 you know even even today, as I, I was going through some documents and trying to do some uh, on, some other work on, on on something that I was involved in, and there's always this emphasis about calling our past a, a rich culture, our our rich culture, and our you know um, you know our storied history. Um, and we don't talk about as much how much we had to persevere through adversity. You can't talk about our storied history as if it's a, a, a story, a fairy tale. It's, it's rife with, with adversity and death. And, you know, if you're going to talk about somebody's, you know, perseverance or resilience, then you better talk about what they had to persevere through and what they and resilience to what if you're going to talk about you know you know the the fact that we're we're still we're still trying to preserve our values the word preserves i mean even when you talk about canning and, and making preserves what you're doing is you're trying to create an environment that can fight off bacteria so when we're trying to preserve something what are we preserving it from it isn't just from attrition. It's, we're trying to preserve something from attack. We're trying to preserve our identity. And, and, and when I hear language like, you know, preserving or protecting sovereignty, no. I mean, not, not completely. What we're trying to do is assert sovereignty. We're trying to assert our identity. We're not just, talking, we're not just trying to teach our children about what took place in the past especially the, the long past. We need to have conversations about what took place this year, what's happening now, what happened five years ago, 10 years ago. I mean, some of the greatest accomplishments we have had as Native people were sometimes small victories in our fight against the state. It, you know, this surviving, you know, uh, influenza or smallpox or... You know, you know, or venereal diseases that were, you know, imposed through the rape culture of Europe or tuberculosis that was allowed to run wild through residential schools. 
it wasn't just surviving those diseases. It was surviving the intent of, of U.S. and Canadian policy to use those diseases to diminish our population. They called it, they say, no, they don't even call it murder. They don't call it, you know, extermination. They literally call it depopulation, like, like it's a defoliant or something. When you say depopulation, it, sound, it, doesn't, it sounds almost scientific. It doesn't sound like it's, it's a crime against humanity. So when we talk about, you know, some of this history, it's important that we, yes, that we, that we talk about the, the triumph of survival, but it's not done without a cost. We lost millions of people since European contact. And I don't mean just that, we, that millions of people died. We, they were taken from us by U.S. policy, by European policy. This is what happened. And I, and I think there's a hesitancy to, to really dwell on the, uh, the atrocities that were committed. And, and I'm not trying to paint us as victims as pitiful victims. I'm trying to paint us as triumphant survivals, survivors of a genocide that has no match in all of human history. 500 years? Over 500 years of genocide? And look, and I know, you know some people say, well, yeah, but genocide doesn't really continue. Yes, it does. And that's what I'm talking about. The idea of erasing us, that's why I talk about mascots. That's why I talk about some of the things we talk about here, defending our lands. All of this is about erasure. That's why I, I oppose so much this idea that, that we need to, uh, you know, be absorbed into the American electorate, into, the, into American citizenry. That's erasing who we are. And, and they're already trying to erase who we were. Because it is being treated as if it was this thing long ago. When, even when people talk, look, I, when they, they talk about history, Native American history, and I, and I don't like that, that term, Native American, but when they talk about Native history, they, it's like 87%, I think it was, of all um, lessons or all mentions within U.S. curriculum of uh, Native history stops at, at, uh, at the 1900s. So it's like we cease to exist as defined people. I mean, and, and how crazy is, is it that in 1927, they try to pass this, you know, this, you know, omnibus, <laughs> you know, omnipresent law that says every Native person is now being declared a U.S. citizen. So, but in their attempt to do that, and they were already trying to do that, it suggests that we no longer existed as Native people. You know, that, that's the termination program. That's one of the five policies. Termination. We don't have to acknowledge that you, that you exist anymore. Not as a distinct people. We don't have to kill you anymore. We just put you on a different list now. We don't have to regard you as a Native, as Native That's erasure. That's genocide. Again, genocide isn't just murder. It isn't just sterilization. It isn't just torture and mutilation. It isn't just forced migrations away from lands you know, that are unsustainable. It is any of those things. It's creating any condition that would cause the people to cease to exist. And one of the ways you can cause the people to cease to exist is change our names. Change what we call ourselves. Change what we're called. Call us Indians. Call us Redskins. And, or when you use those words, 
let's pretend that they don't really mean us anymore. They mean a people who don't exist anymore. So when they look at us, and, oh, yeah, well, you guys are like, uh, you're Native Americans. You're like descendants of an, of an indigenous population. That you're, I mean, in fact, <laughs> that's kind of the, the international definition of indigenous peoples are descendants of a people prior to colonization. That's why I have some problem with that, with that word indigenous, unless I take the time to, to explain it. See, there's so much that happens within language because language creates policy. And again, if we only value ourselves as, as some integration into American culture or a subculture of American culture, that's erasure. That's assimilation. Integration is assimilation. And, and there's, you know, so when, when people think about, you know, being, you know, um, integration and fighting integration when it comes to um, uh, civil rights, this is something different because we have our own lands. We, we still, you know, they've been diminished significantly through some of this policy, through genocide. But we are a distinct population and trying to maintain that distinction and our ability to govern ourselves and to carry ourselves and to administer our um, use and needs of the lands that we do still retain, this is an ongoing battle. It's, it's a fight that we are still as engaged in today as we ever were. Our populations are smaller. Our land bases are smaller. But, you know, in the world that we live in today, what we do as a distinct population that can somehow be disassociated with the, with the corruption of American politics, with the um, uh, degrading of, of land environmentally, the more that we can um, assert ourselves on a different path than our neighbors, the better off we're going to be. And you know what? It isn't to, to deride or, or condemn the, the people that we live next to. It's to say there's another path. And the path that we had before your ancestors showed up is the one that we're returning to. And you might want to take a look at what we're doing because your survival may depend on it as well. You know, I know this is kind of a roundabout way to, get, to, you know, to deal with these, these converging subjects and some of this conversation, but... You know, again, I think it's, it's important that people realize that we, we do not live um, in a vacuum. Some of the stuff that, that, um, that we are faced with is driven not even by policy that people can necessarily identify right now, but systemic racism, things that have been going on for so long that it becomes normalized and it doesn't stand out. So, you know, you know, again, that's, that's why the mascot issue is an issue. And that's why we, we talk about, you know, so many of these things. We have to oppose some of these, uh, some of the conditions that, uh, that have existed. So, again, I want to, I, look, I want to thank you guys for, uh, for, for bearing with me as I kind of meander through a couple of different subjects here. Uh, by all means, check out Buck v. Bell. Um, and at some point, maybe we'll get, uh, you know, Keith Burke or, or some other folks on to, to talk about the connection between, you know, eugenics and uh, sterilization of Native people. 
I'm not the first person to have this conversation, um, so I'm, but I am trying to uh, make sure this conversation continues to be had. So let's, let's do it. I want to thank you guys for listening. I am John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Yahweh.